Welcome to Defragmenting, a podcast of Cairn University, promoting biblical integrity and thoughtful Christianity. The question, am I being formed, is never a valid one for the Christian. Rather, we must continually ask ourselves, by what am I being formed, and how? In his book, Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age, Samuel James claims rather than being a neutral tool, the internet, particularly the social internet, is an epistemological environment a spiritual and intellectual habitat that creates in its members particular ways of thinking, feeling, and believing. James believes Christians have been largely unaware of the formative powers of regular life online. In this episode, he and Dr. Plummer talk about why it's important for followers of Jesus to realize how the habits and practices of the digital world obscure wisdom, which James defines as conformity to the objective reality of God's creation, and how we can resist. Let's join their conversation now. My guest today is someone that I've been looking forward to speaking with for some time because he is the author of a book that has been receiving due attention as of late. It is titled Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age And that is Samuel D. James, who is the Associate Acquisitions Editor at Crossway and author of Digital Liturgies, a regular newsletter on Christianity, technology, and culture. He, his wife Emily, and their three children reside in Louisville, Kentucky. And Samuel, as I said, I've eagerly awaited this moment for some time because I greatly appreciate your book. I know the demands on your time are many. Uh, So thanks for accepting the invitation to be on Defragmenting. I'm very glad to be here, Keith. Thank you for the invitation. Sure. Well, before we get into some of the elements of the the book, as I read through it, I thought, this is uh, one of a growing number of Christians, not enough, if if I think, but uh, a growing number of Christians who have been influenced to a great deal by um, what are known as media ecologists, people such as Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan, uh, more contemporaneously, though maybe not under the umbrella of media ecologists, Sherry Turkle, Nicholas Carr, and so forth. And I was just curious in terms of um, what what were some of the things that led you to give as much attention as you obviously have to this relationship between spiritual formation and technology and the ways that our technologies shape us? So I think this probably started just very personally, my own journey kind of with being a uh, high school senior in the year that I got Facebook. And um, I think for people my age and older, uh, there is an unusually clear memory of what life was like before many of these social media technologies. So we kind of have, you know, a category for uh, friendship, for news intake, for contemplating different ideas. We have a category for that before social media, before the internet kind of mediated all of that for us. And so because I had that experience and I, I, I have that memory of what life was like before that, I've been very attuned, I think, to the ways in which I've just noticed myself as a thinker and as a as a person has changed um, in kind of my own digital era, so to speak. So this this is kind of an ongoing 
a personal conversation that I'm having with myself all the time about the ways in which uh, social media and uh, the way things are presented online and uh, the way these things kind of affect uh, how I consider and the decisions that I come to on certain issues. But then I think one of the the major events that kind of pushed me toward uh, this kind of reading and thinking and researching uh, probably was the election in 2016. I think the election in 2016 was maybe the most vivid example to that point for me of watching in real time as as myself and people that I knew kind of adopted personas and took positions and made certain types of arguments that just seemed so discordant with what I had known about them to that point. And I, I realized that the longer I went on and the more kind of conversations I had with people where, you know, they would kind of say one thing in our, in our lunches and they would say a very different thing online. I realized that, that the question really wasn't who was the real person, the online version or the offline version, because the realization was they were both real. The, these, these were two very real versions of the same person, but it was in one context there was a way of thinking and a way of communicating that became more plausible. In a different context, it was a different way. So realizing that about myself, realizing that about people who are close to me is what sent me on this journey of asking why. Why Why is it that on Twitter or on YouTube or on Instagram, things can be kind of so packaged to make certain kinds of rhetoric and certain kinds of thinking just seem more appealing. And then as soon as I like back away from that technology and I encounter people or I encounter a book, this the thought patterns seem to change. And it was it was reading Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, in the summer of 2020 that that kind of finally made that last key connection of of why this is happening. And so really digital liturgies is is my effort to, if nothing else, kind of make Nicholas Carr and by extension, Neil Postman, Marshall McLuhan, Sherry Turkle, as you mentioned, but also people like Cal Newport, to make those conversations or to, um, to make those thinkers' uh, ideas conversant with Christian theology. That's that's really all I'm trying to do. Um, so that's it was a very personal journey and it was a it was a journey that was, I think, egged on by certain things that were happening kind of around the 2016 election. Sure. Well, one of the things that I so resonated with was Nicholas Carr was very catalytic in my own thinking uh, when I read first his article is Google making us stupid mm -hmm. and then the shallows. And I recognized myself in what he was describing about himself, uh, particularly this very vivid word picture that he gave about at one point being like a scuba diver beneath the surface of the sea of words as he would be able to immerse himself in reading and then uh, realizing that with time on the net, he had been, he had become more like a guy on a jet ski zipping along the surface. And I said, this is, um, this is me. Yeah. And, and, and what really struck me about things that he was saying and that Sherry Turkle and Postman and others, it, it seemed to me that they were up, they were putting their finger on something that Christians should be taking note of, and none of them were coming from an explicitly um, spiritual standpoint. But I thought they're they're identifying something that is problematic, but they're lacking the framework 
in terms of which to make sense of it. We've got the framework, but we're not paying attention to the problem. Do you think that that is accurate? I think so. I think it's probably not an accident that many of the the people who have kind of initiated this conversation and this rethinking of digital technology uh, in our own time, um, higher education is a is a major frame of reference for them. So they talk about mm-hmm. uh, what's going on in higher ed and the students that they're interacting with and and how the students seem. Uh, to struggle basically with reading comprehension or to to stay with kind of a longer reading assignment. So so there seems to be kind of phenomenologically, mm-hmm. there seems to be kind of a uh, an inflection point in higher education where people are kind of seeing the effects of these technologies on our cognitive capacities in real time. But I also I also think part of Part of the problem, I don't know if it's a problem per se, but but part of the issue is that, you know, Christians have been historically uh, very eager to co-opt technology for the advance of the gospel. Um, so John Dyer's mm-hmm. book, People of the Screen, uh, is a really good book about the history of evangelicals in the digital Bible. Uh, and it, one of the points that he keeps coming back to is that there's kind of this evangelistic entrepreneurialism that has surrounded uh, Christians, especially American Christians, and um, technologies of global mass communication, so mass media technologies. So whether that's the radio, the television, and now the internet, it's it's kind of the same impulse. And like I said, I don't think that's a problem per se, but what I think it tends to do is it tends to place all of the burden on the role of content. And so Christians talking about the internet have focused almost exclusively for the last 20 years on pornography, have have focused on, you know, how do you combat it? How do you filter it out? How do you set up kind of these relational uh, accountability dynamics to help families and help individuals kind of not fall into addictive patterns with regard to pornography? And that's a valuable conversation, but that has taken so much of the evangelical energy that there's really not been anything left over for, hey, actually, I, I think there might be something discordant with the way that we use these technologies in general and the way that we're supposed to think and reflect and communicate just as people made in the image of God. Hmm. And and we could we could honestly have an entire episode about why that is. I you know, whether you want to talk about its lack of a theology of the body, whether you want to talk about it's a kind of a lack of a theology of technology and society and kind of the the role that uh, human beings play in in setting up structures. But regardless of of kind of the layers to that, I, I do think one of the net effects has been we just haven't really thought about this. Uh, we we haven't really been um, haven't been thinking critically. But I, I think now is an opportunity for the church because um, so much of the research now is showing not just what Nicholas Carr was talking about in terms of cognitive intellectual effects, but severe emotional effects, severe relational aftershocks of people who've just grown up with their experience of the world mediated online, and whether it's somebody like Gene Twenge or somebody like Jonathan Haidt, uh, there, there's there's clearly kind of a social cost mm-hmm. to these technologies. And that is where I think the Christian church can actually step in and start leading from ahead, uh, because we have, as you said, the categories for explaining why this happens, but we also have we also have the church. We have, we have the church and we have scripture, which are a living community, 
and a living word, a living book that kind of answered this intellectual, emotional dilemma that we're in. Well, a lot of uh, discussion and analysis about uh, digital engagement amongst Christians focuses on the uh, necessity to implement greater self-control, to make better use of our time, and so forth. And in the introduction to your book, you say this, what if the reality we need to face is not so much about how we overuse and overlove a valuable tool, but about what happens when a tool is no longer a tool? What if the issues... Um, what if the issue is not that we aren't making the internet more humane, but it's that the internet is making us less so? And you already touched on this to some degree, but I can imagine someone hearing that language and the language of the internet making us blank uh, and hearing that and saying, well, but it can't make us do anything. It's how we use it. Why is that something of a naive approach? I think it's. I think it contains a nugget of truth. For example, um, mm-hmm. you know, we're moral agents, and we can cont- we possess moral agency regardless of the context that we find ourselves in. So, so that's true, and there, there's no. I don't have any desire to to kind of override that or negate that. But I think that is a naive take because it very much undersells the power of environment and the power of habit in the becoming the kind of people that we are. And this is something that I think is actually very evident when you look at scripture. So scripture does not give God's people, and this is true in the Old Testament and the New Testament, scripture does not just give God's people kind of a list of things to remember and say, go evangelize the world or go be God's people with all this list of things to remember. Mm-hmm. Instead, Scripture gives God's people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, rituals. It gives them practices. It gives them assemblies. It gives them kind of this way to structure their life so that the promises of God, who He is, and reminding ourselves of our identity as God's people is constantly kind of before our eyes. And before our eyes is, you know, biblical language that simply means the object of our attention. So, it's it's pulling our attention on certain truths. Because when you structure your life, whether it's according, you know, whether it's the, the Old Testament patterns of feast days and things like that, or the New Testament pattern of the Lord's Day and assembling in the local church, those patterns and those practices are constitute a liturgical environment, which is where the term liturgies comes from the, in digital liturgies. They constitute a liturgical environment that push our attention in a certain direction. The, the reality is that there are secular liturgies. There are, you know, I don't know if we want to say atheistic, but perhaps irreligious or um, irreverent spaces that we can enter into. And what those spaces do through the way they're designed, through the stories that their images and sounds and ideas uh, suggest to us, uh, what it's telling us is a certain kind of story about the good life and what it means to be a human person. And so, the example that I love is, you know, James K. Smith has done very pioneering work on this in his cultural liturgies analysis and and his, his famous book, Desiring the Kingdom, he has the classic example of the shopping mall as a secular liturgy. So it's not simply that someone is at the door saying, hey, please buy this. It's that you go into the store and there's music, there's lighting, there's 
advertisements. There's a certain structure to this environment that all uh, commends itself to your affections, to your emotions, to your, which is why, you know, we can go in knowing we probably shouldn't buy anything and we can walk out of the store with hundreds of dollars worth of stuff because we've been affected at a level deeper than our cognition, right? Um, And so I think what people who say, well, you know, the internet doesn't force us to do anything. It's just how we use it. I think what they're missing is just how powerful a liturgical environment can be. Um, they're, They're missing just how shaped our affections can be by an environment and by a space that pushes our attention towards certain things. And so the question is, is that true of the internet? Is the internet that kind of space? And I think it is. I think the internet has a a, a kind of religious um, immersive effect on us, particularly as we engage with it socially. You know, Nicholas Carr makes the distinction between technologies that are like the screwdriver or the wheel and intellectual technologies, which are technologies that directly shape our language and our and our habits of thought. And I think intellectual technologies definitely present plausibility structures to us. We, we Because this technology exists, our reaction to it is that this should exist and that we should be able to do this. Uh, and the internet is a powerful intellectual technology because it's so immersive because we we give it our full attention it speaks to us it uses sound it uses visual media it uses video and it uses this community quote unquote of disembodied persons to tell us a story about what's real and the book really is just kind of recounting the ways in which that's true um so yeah i th- i think it profoundly undersells the impact that a affectional liturgical space like the internet can have on us as people and on the choices that we make and the values that we pursue. Yeah, you say at one point that uh, rather than being a neutral tool, the internet, particularly the social internet, is an epistemological environment, a spiritual and intellectual habitat that creates in its members particular ways of thinking, feeling, and believing. And that idea, I mean, somewhat it's there, there's something of a paradox, or you know, I can't think of a better word, that on one hand, we're talking about disembodied interaction, but we're using the terminology, which I think is accurate, of environment, habitat, space. But to, to say that this is something that we enter into and we're spending a great deal of time in, though in a disembodied way, and as you were just saying, your um, your point is that there is a story about the way that life should be and what the good life is that is mediated not propositionally through the internet, but in the, the practices, the liturgies uh, that we are involved in routinely, daily, and often unthinkingly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, and, and that's a that's a very it's an excellent observation of the paradox between kind of this disembodied nature, which is what the internet does to all of us. We all exist on the internet kind of as mental selves. Uh even even in our conversation right now, which is being mediated through online technology, like I'm not across from you. I, you know, I I can move my camera and control what you see of me. I have I have a power over this encounter that I would not have if you and I were sitting across from the table from each other. That's kind of what we mean by by a disembodied or even like a sub-embodied uh, experience. 
when I talk about spaces and, and kind of liturgical spaces, I'm also kind of including like where we give our attention. So, so if you direct your attention to, well, let me talk about it negatively. If you are in a church service and you're constantly in your phone, on your phone, like checking football scores or something like that, um, it had, the church has not ceased to become a liturgical space, but because you're not giving it your attention, the effect is not felt by you in the same way. Uh, the church is still a liturgical space, but you have not entered into it as such. Um, so the question really is, where is our attention being directed? And one of the things that I have really become convinced of in the last couple of years, even, even after I started writing the book, was that the internet is really designed, the contemporary internet especially, it's not quite this way when you look at the internet like of 15 years ago. There's There's been design changes that, that accelerate this. The internet of today is really designed to master our attention spans, to completely crowd out anything else. I'll give you one example. So if you go, listeners might be familiar with the internet archive. Mm-hmm. So you can go to webarchive.org and you can plug in the Wayback Machine and you can like type in a URL, say like newyorktimes.com or uh, you know, whatever you can type in New York and you can actually see, it's really cool. You can see screenshots from the New York time webpage from, you know, the year 2000, uh, or the year 1995, even, I mean, it goes back a long way. One of the things that you'll notice if you do that is for several years, probably until about the late two thousands, the web design of most pages was very, small and very search oriented. So the search bar was, and the navigation bars were very prominent on top and on the sides. It was very easy to kind of access the menu to get where you wanted to go. The idea being that if someone comes to your webpage, the best thing to give them is control over where their attention goes. If you look at contemporary web pages now, this is completely different. The search bars and the navigation menus are hidden. They're often you have to hover over them to actually get them to appear. And what has replaced them has been huge screen size images and links that are pushed toward the user to say, click this next, do this next. There's a there's a totality of the attention span that's being commanded by the structure of the internet. And because our attention is such a spiritual resource, um, this matters incredibly. So even a a person who is conscious of these effects, even a person who is wanting not to have their affections and their values manipulated by online, if they go to a normal website, they can just keep clicking stuff that they didn't even want to click when they got there because algorithmically it's just being pushed to them. I mean, that's that's a liturgical slash religious space if I've ever heard of one. And, and that's the reality facing all of us, whether we want that to happen or not. Yeah, that's a fascinating observation that I, I hadn't noticed in terms of the prominence of search uh, features on web pages and how they're, they have been made somewhat minimal so as to direct our attention somewhere else and to not have the, the control that we otherwise would. The subtitle of the book is Rediscovering Wisdom in the Online Age. Um, what is wisdom? When uh, you have a, a unique way of uh, describing what wisdom is and then talking about how it is that you think that the internet obscures that. So when you speak of of rediscovering wisdom, what is it that you have in mind? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, So wisdom, 
in this in the Bible is kind of a multi-layered thing. So we often think of wisdom as kind of folk wisdom, like street smarts. You know, if a mechanic gives you a certain quote and you kind of know that they're, you know, maybe trying to squeeze a little bit more out of you than is absolutely necessary, then the wisdom is to say, hey, I, I don't want that. Just just take care of the real problem, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that example, it comes to mind because it was very recent a situation <laughs> for me. Um so, so there's kind of like a street smart element to the wisdom. There's there's a, a bookish wisdom. So like the idea of being able to call forth lessons from history, lessons from uh, you know academic study. There, there's that type of wisdom. Um, the Bible, the Bible has something I think more encompassing than that. The Bible talks about wisdom as if it is the uh, almost an, almost the active state of living in light of ultimate reality. So. A person who chooses to live in light of reality is going to act wisely. And so you live in light of reality in terms of money, which is why you work hard. Uh, go to the ant, O sluggard, and be wise. You realize where provision comes from. You're living in light of reality. Um, a person who lives in light of reality is faithful to their spouse and doesn't commit adultery. There's so there's so much be, because the effects of adultery are so devastating, as the proverbs say. A person who has wisdom is a person who lives kind of along the grain of the world that God has made. So you live in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, um, but you also receive from Him the way the world works because you're not God and because you can't create the world in your image. And so you have to receive his wisdom and the way he built the world, and you have to align yourself accordingly. You can't tell God, I want you to be this type of God because I'm this type of person. You have to make, you have to submit to his design, and that is a life of wisdom. And in the context of the book, what I am trying to get at is the fact that in the Bible, the wisdom of God is deeply physical. It's deeply embodied. So because it's tied to the world that God made, God did not simply make a constellation of, of minds. He did not simply make us to be um, ghosts who kind of communicate with each other telepathically. He gave us a physical self. And not only that, he called our physical selves part of his image. That is that is what it means to be embodied is part of what it means to be made in God's image, according to the book of Genesis. Uh, so what that means is that recovering a sense of our embodied self and a sense of the world as it really is, not simply as the world the world as it could be uh, if we were able to manipulate it just right, recovering that is actually an issue of wisdom. It's not simply about being nostalgic and wanting to go back to a pre-internet way of life. It's about recovering a sense of what the world is really like because digital immersion gives us an unreal sense of what the world is like. The more immersed we are in these digital technologies, the more we become convinced of things that simply aren't true at an affectional level. We we sense that we have total control over how we can present ourselves. We have total control over identity. We have total control over things we don't like. These myths, these lies come into us because of the affectional nature of the internet and recovering a sense of how wrong that is and a sense of living in God's given world and receiving that givenness is part of the pursuit of Christian wisdom. By this um, objective reality, what you have in mind is the idea that there is a givenness to creation, 
that we will either acknowledge and submit ourselves to or reject and fight against, in which case we're being foolish. Right. And you believe that our immersion in online life, if we are not careful, is shaping us to think that life is other than it is and perhaps should be other than it is. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So so one example I give of this in the book is for people who came of age kind of through the internet. So people who were who were in school learning how to use the internet and and the the internet kind of and social media kind of conditioned their experience of the world. Like they 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 kind of grew emotionally and socially online, so to speak. Um for those kinds of people, there's a very powerful sense that they should be able to get rid of anything that makes them uncomfortable. That that the person that they see who's saying something that of- offends them should go away. And if they don't go away, something is wrong. Something something is needs to be fixed. Um, there, and I think that is a direct result of a computerized vision of reality. Because on the computer, if there's something that you don't like, you can always delete it. Uh, and even on social media. There's, if there's someone you don't like, you can always block or mute them. There's a sense of control over our worlds that we uh, can attune ourselves to when we're online, but that sense of control doesn't translate to the real world. If I, if I leave here and I go to the coffee shop down the road and I start to, to kind of interact with people the way I interact online, and I and someone starts to say something that I really don't like, and I say mute or block, you know, it that's not gonna work. Why? Because reality is given. I can't con- I can't control the fact that they exist and are saying this. And in fact, if I try to do that, I'll be probably be guilty of a crime, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have laws <laughs> that govern, we have laws that govern uh how to live together in a in a society of diverse opinions and views. Though those laws and that that value of of kind of living together, even though we don't agree, that doesn't make any sense to a computerized consciousness. It doesn't make any sense because the computerized consciousness values one thing: control over the experience. And when, to to live in the real world, to live in the world that God made, to live in the world that's affected by sin, is to relinquish almost all of that control and to realize how powerless we are in the grand cosmic sweep of things uh, and how much reality we simply have to accept. Um, so that's that I think that is one of the more vivid examples of how foolishness seems natural when we're kind of thinking in very digital terms. Yes. As I read what you had to say about that, uh, another author and work that came to my mind was Kelly Capick's, um You're Only Human where he's talking about the goodness of our limitations. And rather than seeing our limitations as something that need to be transcended or discarded, we we need to appreciate how they are, uh, they are gifts, that there is a givenness to life that is a good thing that we must learn how to work within. You you say concerning that uh, obscuring of, of wisdom at one point, This habitat, this digital habitat itself, tells us a story, a story that humans are not essentially people with flesh and blood, voices and facial expression, but users whom we can sufficiently know from their words, profile pictures, and shares. Uh, 
I don't know if you wanted to expound on that at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's easy to just kind of shrink people to the size of an avatar, whether that's mm. intellectually. So you you kind of grow to associate certain people with certain things that they've said. Maybe, maybe it was even one thing that they said online. And, and now every time you see this person or you think of this person, you think of that one thing, which is a very very terrible way to live. But I, I think the, the clearest example of this, Keith, is really just how common it is for people to uh, just explode at one another online. And there is a there's a very a very clear um, denial, and I don't mean at a conscious level, I mean at a functional level. There's a very clear functional denial of the other person's humanity. Uh, of what's going on. Uh, there's a there's a there's a sense in which this person has really been turned into kind of this digital thorn in our shoe, and we just want to get it out of there and move on. And I think that's what cancel culture is, right? I think I think when we think about what what it takes for somebody to be harangued by a mob and lose their job, lose their reputation, uh, what it means for that person to be, at the center of that storm, a shame storm, as Helen Andrews called it in her piece, which I link quote in the book, um, what it means is to find yourself surrounded by people who don't see you as a person anymore and who see you as something less than human, see you as kind of a, a smudge on their screen that needs to be wiped out. Um, and I think there's a lot of people uh, who have participated in those types of online pylons that would never do that in a in a real life situation. They would never try to get a, a person. Now, some of them probably would, but I think there's a lot of people who would never do that in an embodied situation. Why? Because you have to look the person in the face. You have to see them for who they are. You have to you have to stand in front of them and say, "I don't think you deserve to live." And most people are not willing to do that. Why? Because the on the in-person context makes that implausible. And the online context makes it more plausible. And that's simply the, the structure of a liturgical environment. We find certain ideas and beliefs easier uh, in one space than we do in another. Um, and so when we when we lose a sense of our humanity, when we lose a sense of who we are as embodied people, it becomes easy to to see ourselves and see each other simply as blips that are either good good blip or bad blip and the more time that we are spending in the online habitat the the more insistent we become that life outside of it uh, replicate it oh well shame and outrage are two of the digital liturgies that you identify in the second portion of your book you deal with uh, five digital liturgies in terms of some of the attitudes and uh, dispositions that are created by our um, the, the habit, the ritual of being online. I wanted to speak about uh, two of them in particular. One was authenticity. Uh, the first digital liturgy that you, you point out, you say, uh, if we look hard at the epistemological habitat of the internet through the eyes of wisdom, we will see that the privileging of personal experience as ultimate truth is not just something we find online, it's the very logic of the social internet itself. Could you expand on that? Absolutely. 
So in the in the kind of four-dimensional world of reality, of physical reality, um, there's kind of this just natural gatekeeping effect, so to speak, of information and of knowledge. So people assume that uh, adults know more than children, that teachers know more than their students, uh, maybe not in everything, but in, in the subject that's being taught. Um, people assume that those who've been to medical school, medical school and have degrees uh, kind of know what they're talking about more than tend to know more than what they're talking about more than other people. And these aren't absolute rules where, you know, we mean in every situation, this person knows more than, but there is kind of just this general acceptance, almost like a social contract where we accept that study and experience and credentialism create kind of this hierarchy of knowledge. But, but that's just, we, we just take it for granted. That hierarchy of knowledge is created by institutions and by kind of social dynamics that don't really exist on the internet. So there's no really kind of intellectual um, gatekeeping online because the internet is a democratized medium that flattens distinctions. That's how it works. That's actually the source of its of its one of its great benefits, right? The fact that somebody like me, who doesn't have the most advanced degrees and who's not connected to the most elite institutions, can uh, get knowledge that you know even sixty years ago was only accessible to a few people. Uh, you know, it's 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 an incredible thing. It's it's a it's a world changing thing in many ways for the good. Uh, but it is the source of of this radical reconceptualization of where authority comes from. So if if the old system, authority kind of comes from these these agreed upon parameters where people safeguard knowledge and they safeguard kind of uh, expertise is is maybe the wrong word, but like this the sense of of ha- knowing knowing something. So, so you know if, if you have a question to go to your pastor rather than go to your next door neighbor instinctively, like you have a sense of that. That formula is completely broken online because everyone has a voice. Everyone kind of has this this public insertion into the idea exchange of culture, so to speak. Everyone kind of has a booth in the in the the outdoor market of online idea sharing. And so what that does, it creates a bottleneck because how are you supposed to adjudicate truth claims between one person and and another person and 10,000 other people? Well, the way this tends to happen is that the people with the most authentic personal narratives win. The people who are able to say, well, I don't know about all of your arguments or all of your logic, but this happened to me so that therefore this is absolutely true. And there are extreme versions of that, but there's also everyday versions of that. It's not an accident that on the internet, the customer review has become the authoritative sense, uh, source of knowledge. Um, if, if, you're wanting to, if you're wanting to know whether to buy a product, whether to see a particular counselor, whether to go to a particular school, the first instinct all of us in the digital era have is to go look up the online review. And that shows where 
the balance of authority has been located in our digital culture. It's been located in the the aggregation of personal experience. And when you click on a customer review, you're not looking for tightly argued uh, expositions of why this thing is good or bad. You're looking for, I went here. This was my experience. These people were nice to me or these people were not nice to me go to this place or stay away from this place. You're looking for that first person narratival experience because it's from there that you draw your conclusions. And I'm I'm not saying that that is a horribly negative thing all the time. I'm glad for customer reviews. I'm glad for Yelp reviews. But we have to acknowledge that that is a radical uh, recentering of knowledge and authority in our own culture. And it's it's not an accident that the the era of gender uh, confusion and transgender ideology follows in the in the era of Yelp reviews. It, it's the same thing. It's the power to define our own experience and to turn that into an authoritative source of knowledge for other people. Uh, it's it's the same effect, just calculated out much wider. Hmm. Yeah, and with that um, flattening that you described, it doesn't really matter the the expertise or the authority of the person who is giving that first-person review. In fact, you say uh, that in a very real sense, the web is a credential-erasing environment, that it doesn't matter whether or not you're qualified to speak to this. What matters is that you authentically speak to it. Right. That's right. You know, the age of credentialism has its own problems, right? And we've seen this in the last couple of years with with coronavirus and the way certain institutions and certain media organizations just got things so disastrously wrong. Uh, and and in the process, we're, we're hounding people with blogs who didn't have the same credentials, but who were saying, hey, this happened, or I noticed this, or I'm asking questions about this. And so, when, but precisely when that happens, the reason it's so scandalous and so devastating is because it kind of, it cuts at the root of our sense of authority, period. So when, when an institution fails, our reaction to it is scandal and outrage and grief precisely because there is something in us that knows it can't just be a free-for-all. We can't just be litigating individual experiences 24-7. There has to be some sense that we can get objective truth. And when our institutions and our kind of our credentialed uh, fortifications and our our, uh, places of, of learning and expertise, when those places fail to defend objective truth, it matters precisely because we need those sources of objective truth. Um, so, and, you know, in, we just live in an era in which that is no longer uh, considered to be something desirable, uh, except when it scandalously fails. Yeah. We talked with uh, Bonnie Christian on the podcast a while back about her book, Untrustworthy, and she was pointing out what she calls you know, a knowledge crisis, which is yeah very much what you're describing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, there absolutely is a knowledge crisis, and it's, uh, it's, it's made, it's made worse every day by media organizations and government institutions that that mishandle the truth. Uh, and so, you know, I don't want anybody to hear what I'm saying as, you know, we we need to get rid of bloggers or we need to get rid of, you know, we need to get rid of people who have stories to tell. That's not my position at all. But we do need to recover a sense of objective truth. It, it simply cannot be that the customer review is kind of the 
the epitome of, of public authority in our lives. Uh, per, one reason being no one fact checks a customer review. No one knows what's going on there. I could write a negative customer review of a thousand institutions this afternoon that I've never visited and have no intention to, and almost no one would be able to call me on it. And so there's no way to police uh, the truth claims of the populace in a democratically flattened medium. And so we, and so as Christians, like we have, we don't get a choice of whether we want to care about truthful things. We have to, we're people of the word, we're people of the way, the truth and the life. So we have to care about those things. You, you touched on pornography earlier in the conversation. Clearly um, it is alarming beyond ability to articulate the, the access, the ease, the immediacy with which sexually immoral content is available through the internet, and that is clearly a, a problem with which uh, Christians have to contend. But you say in one of your chapters that we need to see online pornography as a symptom of a greater, more systemic disease. What is that? Yeah, the more systemic disease is the uh, the way that in a digital culture, we take things that are only supposed to be experiences between subjects and we turn them into consumable content. It's it's the virtue of consumption, the virtue of turning everything into a commodity that can be consumed and then disposed of, including people. So, you know, pornography is taking what is meant to be an experience between a, a husband and a wife, a, two people, and it's turning it into something else. It's turning it into a spectator event. It's turning it into a piece of content that can be consumed by someone else and then discarded. Um, and that right there is pretty much the internet in a nutshell, right? We The internet takes things, whether they're friendship or beauty, and it, and it kind of creates this infrastructure where these things are, are downloadable now, that they're, they're, they're editable now. And if all you have to do is kind of consume it like it's this digital food, and you can feel the effects of friendship or beauty or community or even worship, uh, without actually experiencing the thing itself. And we know this is true because the internet has actually developed lingo around it. So we call pictures of the Grand Canyon uh, earth porn. Uh, like literally that that's a category like that that exists online and it's it's not it's not sexually explicit images it's simply pictures of the grand canyon or the african savanna or the australian outback you know beautiful pictures of imagery why do we why do they call it earth porn because it's taking images of things that really do exist and turning it into something that can be easily consumed as a digital commodity that's it's the same process that we do for sex. Same thing for food. Food porn, you, you know, is a huge category on Instagram. It's just people's dinner. It's it's people taking pictures of their dishes. Why do we call it food porn? Because it's something that's meant to be eaten and enjoyed, and it's turned into consumable content that we can just download and then walk away from. Uh, so it's the same. It's this ethic of consumption. Uh, the idea that I because I can't get to the thing itself, I can at least kind of get to a simulacrum of it. I I can kind of I can kind of consume this 
this pixelated version of this and it'll it'll kind of trick my brain or trick my consciousness into thinking that I've had the thing itself when in reality that's not true at all but that's that's why we live in a digital culture where we've attached the suffix porn to even things like food and earth uh, because that's it's that same impulse in us to to try to turn what God gives as gifts to be enjoyed and experienced into something that we can passively consume. Well, people listening might uh, think, well, he's just against the internet. He's going <laughs> to tell everybody to uh, you know, unplug, disconnect, and so forth, which is not the case. In, in your concluding chapter, which you call Habits of Wisdom and Resistance, you um, what might surprise some, you don't give us like points of how it is that you can use your digital media less. And you don't give, as I mentioned earlier, of a highly individualistic um, solution. What you write is this, to actively resist the dehumanization of much digital technology, we have to do something simple, yet often difficult. We must gather. And and you and by that, I mean, it's clear that you do have in mind, in part, but not exclusively, the gathering of the people of God for worship in regular fashion. But you have the, it's broader than that in terms of we've got to prioritize the being together. Uh, as we near the end here, can you just speak some to that? Why, the, why is that so important? I think it's important because one of the most powerful things that's happened to our digital technology in the last decade plus is that we've kind of superimposed the language of friendship on it. So, you know, Facebook Facebook really changed, and they weren't the first to do it, but Facebook really changed the world in a serious way when it called the accounts that you can add friends. So friend requests. So that right there is a revolutionary suggestion of what a friend actually is. So in that way, many of us over the past 20 years have been rehearsing a definition of friendship that is utterly disconnected from being together with a person, from actually knowing them, from them knowing us, from being able to share our hearts and our struggles and our 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 sense of identity with them, um, it has been completely divorced from that. Uh, instead, we have understood friendship to mean, oh well, this is a person who follows me online, or this is a person who I send the occasional message to. Um, that is a radical dilution of the word friendship radical. And it is completely at odds with the picture of Christian life together that we get from the New Testament. I mean, the the, the one another's in the New Testament simply defy digitization. Um, you know, serve one another, rejoice with those who rejoice, uh, prefer one another. You know, these are commands that you actually have to know this person to do. Like, you can't serve this person by liking their status. Like, you can't prefer this person by, you know, uh, sharing their post. Um, that's not what serving means. It means something more granular. It means Job's friends coming to sit on the ash heap with him while he is on the brink of utter ruin. That is that is what friendship is. And we've lost that because we've attached that word to this really novel category of digital acquaintance. Um, Eric Jacobson has a wonderful book called Three Pieces of Glass. And in this book, he talks about how 
the relationships that have probably been the most directly uh, suppressed by our technology are not necessarily our closest friendships, our closest familiar relationships, but honestly, those kind of second tier relationships. So the the person that you always see at the gas station or the person that you always would talk to at the bus stop or the person that you always run into because you sit near them at church. What technology has done is it's by taking our attention, it's distracted us from those tiers of relationships. And it's really redefined how we experience our communities and our neighborhoods and our churches. So I think you know, primarily the the act of resisting the digital liturgies begins with doing it in community. It begins with rediscovering friendship. And as we do that, Keith, I really believe that people who people who make that first step of reprioritizing embodied in-person friendship in their lives, they will find that the allure of many of these social media apps, begins to recede. They'll find it easier to put technology in its proper place. They'll find it a little bit more natural to not succumb to many of these addictive tendencies because it's just so much better. It's so much better to be known and to know and to love and to be loved by real people. Uh, And it's because we don't have that, that we tend to look to technology to fill that void. So Um, You know, I was talking to somebody the other day, you know, about why the book doesn't have kind of a more individual, like 12 step program for do this and do that. And I said, really, technology is so liquid and people's uh, contexts are so varied that as soon as I say, do this one specific thing, that becomes impossible or irrelevant in some person's context. And I actually don't think Christian wisdom is like that. I think Christian wisdom has a very personalized character where it says, love the Lord, love one another, walk in step with the Spirit, and make those choices that are not necessarily spelled out for you, but that become more intuitive to you as you follow closely to Christ and as you consult with other people in your life. So that's kind of what I'm hoping the book will do, is to just bring people back into a recognition, and myself too, uh, to a recognition of how much we need one another and how much the the allure of these technologies can really recede uh, in the light of embodied fellowship. As you were speaking, I was thinking about uh, even prior to Facebook, AOL, which, uh, you know, I'm dating myself, but AOL with the, with the buddy list. <laughs> And, and I remember an ad for AOL Instant Messenger that said, never be lonely again. Mm. And so not only is there this uh, redefining of friendship, but you know, you've been talking so much about embodiment. I One thing that has concerned me is I think that there has been a radical redefining of even community. And uh, what is desperately in need is not only a theology of embodiment, but a theology of place and its significance. Um, so, yeah, that is very, very helpful. Well, I have mentioned to you on online, I have so appreciated the book. I teach a, a class called Technology and Christian Discipleship, and upon reading the book, I thought, I've got to incorporate this into the class. So, I have I have adopted it as a required text, and I'm very grateful uh, for it and for your you're thinking one one question I wanted to ask you is 
do you ever feel like Chicken Little? And I'm not asking that because I think you should. I'm asking it because sometimes I feel like Chicken Little as I talk about some of these things with people. Um, I think sometimes there is the response of, oh, come on, you're, you're making too much of this. Uh, but but do you ever have you ever felt like that? Uh, yeah, pretty much every day I was writing the book. <laughs> uh, no, I, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I think, it, and you know what? I think that could actually be a sanctifying thing to feel because it's, it's a good thing to remind myself that, uh, God's kingdom does not rise or fall on this issue. Like if I, you know, if this book is not the, <laughs> this, this book is not going to usher in, uh, you know, the millennial reign, like it's it's good to remind myself of that. Uh, and so is the sky falling? I don't believe the sky's falling. I believe that when Jesus prayed for the disciples in the upper room, he said, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but I pray that you would protect them from the evil one. That right there is a profound model of how to view ourselves in this digital age. We're not praying that the Lord would take us out of the digital age. We're not praying that the Lord would somehow wind the clock back, put Pandora back in her box. Instead, what we're praying for is that the power of the evil one would be thwarted through these technologies. And, and in a sense, the positive side is that is that we're praying that we would learn how to use these technologies, uh, whether social media or streaming or anything like that, in a way that pushes people toward Christian wisdom. Um, and I, I don't think that that's necessarily an impossibility. Um, I'm still kind of working through what that might look like, but I think there's a lot of Christians thinking in that direction. Uh, will that entail kind of pulling back from certain apps and certain memberships? I think so. I think there's going to be certain technologies that we simply will decline uh, because we we believe that they are uh, antithetical to what we're trying to do as Christians. Um, but the Lord gave us a technological age in His sovereignty. So how do we navigate that faithfully in a way that we can pray with the Lord? Uh, Father, we pray that you would not take us out of the world, but that you would protect us from the evil one. Um, so I, yeah, I sometimes I feel like chicken little, uh, but that's fine. And that's just a reminder that uh, God is still on his throne and it's his kingdom, not mine. Well, that's an excellent word upon which to conclude. But before we finally uh, go, I, I do want to give you an opportunity. I mentioned your newsletter. If people wanted to connect with you through that and read some of your ongoing musings, how could they do that? Yeah, so my uh, newsletter can be found at digitalliturgies.net, digitalliturgies.net. It's a Substack newsletter. I try to to get something out maybe every couple of weeks on theology, culture, uh, technology. Uh, there's book reviews, book recommendations, that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, uh, grateful for the opportunity to to write, and uh, would love to see some of your listeners uh, at the newsletter. Great. Well, I've been speaking with uh, Samuel D. James, and the book that we were talking about is Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. Samuel, again, thank you for the time. Thank you for the effort that you put into the book, and um, just really grateful for you and, and your ministry. Thank you so much, Keith. Really appreciate it. 